We are in week four of our series on Crosswinds Family Values. Uh, remember with the quotation marks around, around family values, meaning what Crosswinds, which we view as a family, what are our values, what motivates us, what are the specific things that help us to minister here in Goblin Heights, minister in Godfrey Lee, minister as we expand to urban communities all over uh, Grand Rapids. And so uh, the family value this, uh, this morning is neighborliness. I don't know if neighborliness is a, is a word outside of, our, outside of our values, but we're going to continue to use it anyways. We're going to uh, espouse the idea. One of the kind of famous... Um, Famous crosswind sayings, sayings that a lot of you would probably know and you have heard is when we say this, neighbors reach neighbors. That's history. It's also the future. We are committed to that idea, and we're going to talk about that this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about it first in kind of a theoretical, uh, a, a theoretical sense. We're going to lay a, a sort of scriptural uh, uh, um, foundation for, for neighborliness in our culture, and then we will, we will delve into, into the practical. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 uh, this morning, and I will read that to you from verse 11 to verse uh, 17. It says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably amongst the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors that uh, sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Uh, here's, uh, here's where we're going to go, and we'll actually just dive right in uh, to this together. I want to begin with this, this reminder, the reminder that, that Peter gives us. In fact, let me just take a minute to say this, that it's Peter who is writing this, Jesus' disciples. He's writing to, to, the, to the church, and he is going to give them a, an example of how they might live in their culture. So he's setting up the, the theological grounding for how they might live appropriately in their, uh, in their culture. The culture they are starting to experience is one that is, is not... Um, is not always amenable to, uh, to Christian belief. It is not always uh, supportive of, of their thought processes. They are starting to experience persecution, although it's not perhaps the hardcore persecution that they would experience under, uh, under coming emperors in the days to come. The, the persecution is, is there already. Christianity I itself is... is um, is frowned on by, by the government. It is, it is persecuted by, by the people. They are beginning to be set apart or be set outside of both the culture, uh, the political systems, the economic systems, all the systems of, it, of its own day. And so Peter writes to them. And in fact, he says, even though we didn't, uh, we didn't use this verse, it's going to be reinforced here. He actually begins this by saying that he's writing to the elect exiles or the, the chosen exiles. And the idea is, is that they are God's people 
chosen by God, they're elect, but they're also exiled. They're set apart from the culture of their time. They're set apart from, from the people of their time. They are outsiders. And so Peter is writing to tell the, the, the people he's writing to how to behave in a place where they are exiled, where they are not uh, the, the insiders of the culture, but they're, they're outsiders. And so uh, it, First Peter, in general, I think fits very well with, with our culture. It fits better and better with where I suspect that our culture is heading. Uh, it, it fits with all of those things. And so given that background, Peter is going to repeat this in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and ex- exiles to abstain from the desires that wage war against the soul. So they are strangers in the culture and they are exiles in the culture. This is Peter's expectation. This is Peter's, uh, this is Peter's knowledge of, of, the, of the situation. Uh, this is important, uh, an important point and an important starting point as we will eventually get to talking about what it means to be a neighbor in, in our culture. It's important to recognize that, that sometimes what has happened historically in, in American culture in the decades in which we have grown up, uh, that this, this concept of being in exile, being an outsider to the, to the general population, has not been the role of Christianity over the last however many decades. But increasingly, it is becoming the role of the place of Christianity. What I mean to say is this, is that for a long time in, in American culture, it was common for, for Christianity to be the dominant the dominant thought process of, of our systems, whether they be our, our, our government, whether they be our, our culture. We've had huge influence in, in even what they put on uh, TV, the standards, the morals. You might, you might use the term uh, Judeo-Christian values. They have been largely and hugely influential in, in the development of our, of our culture and, and in our culture over the last however many Many years, but especially, especially for for our our context over the last um, the last hundred years, uh, this ha- the case has been that that Christianity was one of the dominant cultural influencers. And so, when we read about strangers and exiles, we have not always been able to read that from a place of understanding. Because Christianity was not, in our culture, strange. It was not, in our culture, exiled. In other words, there used to be a time in our culture when you encountered someone who seemed to be spiritually wandering. You could go to that person and say to that person, you need to come back to God. And they would say either no or yes, and they might come back to God. They might come back to the church. It would be a, 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 a common vocabulary. In our culture currently, that even that vocabulary ha- has broken down to the point where if I said to someone who I thought was spiritually wandering, you need to come back to God, they would appropriately ask, which God? Would that God be the God of Islam? Would that God be, uh, be the God of Krishna? Would that God be the God of American spirituality, New Ages? Would that God be the God of, of, of um, or whatever they worship in Buddhism? Which 
God. And in our culture, in, increasingly, though it had been largely influenced by, by Christianity, what you get when you say you need to come back to God is an individualistic, personally developed sort of deity that is most interested in the things that, that we are all most interested in. So what has happened in our culture, though it used to be largely based in Christianity, you need to come back to God. They would say, yes, I come back to God, I come back to the church. You say that now, they're going to say, which God? And then it's likely, as you discuss with them, they are going to have a definition of God that differs from the one that is historic or the Christian definition of God. In fact, it's most likely... The, 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 the God mostly worshipped in America is, is a deity, but he is a deity that reflects the people of, of the country. In other words, he's, he's a self-created God. More and more there is, there is a spiritualism, there's new age sort of thought processes, there's, there's, there's religious syncretism, but we need to face the fact that in America the idea that we could tell a person to come back to God and have them understand that in the sense in which they used to understand it in past decades has passed, has gone on, because we do not live any longer in a culture that is dominated by Christianity or by, by Christian thought. There, so what I see sometimes in, in our culture is a fight to restore, restore um, uh, Christianity to what people would call its rightful place in our culture. This is how we get into culture wars. This is how we get into, uh, get into things like all kinds of Christian movies with various Christian themes. But a lot of times in those, those Christian movies, what is suggested is, is that we simply need to restore God to his rightful place in American, American culture. And the definition of that typically is very much about the, those Judeo-Christian cultural mores values. And, and we want to see God return. And, and don't get me wrong, I do want to see see the kingdom of God established, but typically what, what I'm seeing there is what we are looking to do is through cultural means, whether they be through, through, um, through uh, influence in pop culture, the music, uh, the, the movies, or political means, we want to establish a, a system of behavior for our nation that reflects what we think should be the behavior of, of Christian people. And so all of, all of which, which to say is that we live in an odd cultural place where because Christianity over the last decades has moved from a place of maximum influence at the center of the culture to being kind of on the outside or the outskirts of the culture and we've moved that way consistently, the reaction within a lot of Christianity has been to say we need to we need to put God back in the schools. We need prayer in the schools. We need this person there. We need to and so we have tried through various ways in the culture through legislation and other things to reestablish and put Christianity back into the to the center of culture and we've tried to go back uh, it seems this is why you will hear sometimes longing, especially amongst church people, saying things like, we need to go back to the good old days. Why can't things be like they were? Why can't things be like this? We have a longing uh, in us for, for the way things, things were. That is neither here nor there. However, the reality is, is that we are not going to likely in this country progress to a place where Christianity is once again in the center of the culture, in the center of, of, of the influence, uh, where, where it has that sort, of, that sort of dominance. Or I should say, we are not going to quickly progress back there. And then I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps we don't even want to progress 
back there. All of that to say, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain. The reason why is because Peter assumed that the people he was talking to were strangers and exiles to, to their culture. That was his assumption. He expected them to be. Now, he urged them as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your, your soul. We can assume there that when he, when he says that, he is, of course, talking about personal behaviors and those sorts of things. But he's also talking about the sort of cultural influences that might come against a person who is a, who is a Jesus follower in a culture that was very much different than, than there. So he's talking to a group of people who are outsiders in their own culture. He's talking to a group of people who are not to do things like the culture, and the culture has all kinds of influences, and he encourages them to abstain from the sinful desires that wage against the soul, meaning the kind of cultural things that would be very tempting to get involved with. Conduct yourselves honorably amongst the Gentiles so that they may so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Uh, Gentiles here is probably used euphemistically. There's a good chance, there's some debate, but there's a good chance that First Peter is actually written to, to Gentile people, meaning people who, uh, to a Gentile church, a church full of people who had not been born uh, with, with, uh, with uh, the blood of Abraham coursing uh, through, through their veins, but rather people who had converted to Christ and were following him. So it is likely here that when it says, when it says Gentiles, he's using it euphemistically, but the point either way is this, the Gentiles were assumed were assumed to be people who, who, who behaved in ways that were opposed to the way God would want, us, would want his followers to behave. And so I don't know if you know the word pagan, but we sort of use the, the word pagan in a similar way in our culture right now. When we say pagan, what we typically mean is one who is outside uh, the behaviors, outside the thought processes, opposed to the ways of Jesus, opposed to the ways uh, of, of Christianity. We use the word pagan. The word pagan is a perfect example of what we're talking about because the word pagan originally just means a person who dwelt in the country. And so the word pagan comes from the person who dwelt in the country. How does it come to mean that a person who is opposed uh, to the teachings of Jesus, a person who doesn't follow Jesus? It becomes to mean that because when Christianity is spreading in the first centuries, it's spreading from city to city to city. And it's spreading so fast in the cities that the, the cities are becoming functionally Christianized which does not mean that every person there is, is a believer, but it does mean that so many people there were believers that the influence in the city was so strong that the cities began to become associated with Christianity, and so the country places began to become associated with, with those places where they didn't follow Jesus, where they opposed Jesus, where they did religiously different things. And so the word pagan, which originally meant country dweller, comes to be associated with a person who does not follow Jesus. Similarly, the word Gentile is probably used, well, it's definitely whether you believe this, this passage is written to, to a Jewish church or a Gentile church, it doesn't, uh, a Gentile by blood church, it doesn't matter either way. Gentile is used euphemistically here to simply mean that person who does not live in a way, does not reflect the ways, and is not committed to the person of, of Jesus Christ. So, conduct yourselves honorably amongst the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Here's, here's the, the idea that, the, that I'm trying to paint for you. In this culture in which Peter writes, 
They were outsiders to the culture. They, were, they, were, did, not have, they did not have powerful, high-level access to the government. In other words, there was, no, there was no Christian at the top of the government trying to legislate uh, better, better Christian laws. There was no... Uh, there was no um, uh, what, do, what would we call that? Uh, no, no political action committee of, of Christian people saying this is how we behave. There was no, uh, there was no cultural, cultural impetus just from the group of uh, believers saying this is how it, how it should be. But rather, the Christians were far out on the margins of society, uh, not, by, not respected by, by the powerful people. And when they were out there, uh, he said, when you're out there on the edges of society, continue to conduct yourself in a way that reflects who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And when you do that, conduct yourselves honorably so that the Gentiles or the people who don't love Jesus, when they do their sinful stuff, they'll see the way in which you behave. And even though they might slander you with their mouths, they're going to say bad stuff about you, uh, slander you and say you're evildoers, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God in the day in which he visits. And so the, the argument, the beginning argument here is this, is that you are not in the, in the halls of power right now, Christians. You don't have all the power in the culture. You do not have the ability to, to, to legislate. You don't have the, the ability to make grand declarations. You're not, uh, you're not on whatever was the media or the TV of that day to tell people about Jesus. And so the way Christians that you're going to have an influence for Christ is none of those things. It's not going to be through, through, uh, through, uh, political, uh, through political maneuvering. It's not going to be through, through large-scale cultural uh, cultural uh, influence. In other words, we're, they did not have, uh, in our culture, we have CCM, Christian Contemporary Music. They did not have a, at this time uh, uh, the precursor to that. There was no, uh, there was no uh, famous Christian singer of the day who would go on tour and invite people in and then people would go, oh, that Christian singer is kind of cool. Maybe I want to follow his. They didn't have that kind of, they had none of that. What did they have? Their only way to carry out influence was to live honorably amongst the Gentiles, was, was to live, to conduct themselves honorably amongst the Gentiles so that when they slander them as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify the God on the day that he visits. Now, this, this essentially says the way that you're going to be a greatest influence, the way you're going to impact culture, the way you're going to impact society is not through grand scale tours. It's not through, 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 uh, through preaching, rallies. It's not through this event or that event. The way you're going to do that is by living honorably amongst the Gentiles. Now, the assumption then is that the Gentiles would see the way in which they lived. And in observing the way in which they lived, they would, they would even though they'd want to slander them, the result would be they would end up glorifying God on the day he visits because of their works. The assumption then has to be that these people in First Peter were living in close enough community, they were living close enough to these other people, they were doing life close enough to these other people that people could observe them with their eyes, see what was happening, and it was influencing them, and it was changing them. Which, by the way, sounds a lot like neighboring to me, Right? They were neighbors. You, they could be seen. They could be observed. They, they, they could be watched. That's, that's neighboring. We'll come back to that in a minute. But just hold that in, in your head. The suggestion is this, is that Christianity, in, in, when Peter 
when, when First Peter was written, was not in the center place of the culture. It did not hold the highest place of cultural or political or powerful influence. And yet, they were told, here's how you will influence people. So, Hold that. So uh, verse 13 says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether the emperor is a supreme authority or the governors as those sent out to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Uh, we're not really... Uh, <laughs> some of you uh, encounter that verse and you're like, oh my goodness, what's he going to say about that, right? Because you're afraid of where that's going to go, but we're not actually going to go there this morning. Um, good stuff there. But that, that's not really uh, the key interest for me as to this passage. The key interest to me as to this, this passage is this assumption. That Christianity is not <coughs> in Peter's time, nor is it increasingly in our time, uh, a, the, the, in the place of, of center of culture political power. Um, I mean political not just in the government sense, but in cultural influence. The, the power of Christianity is not, uh, is, is not uh, what it used to be uh, here. And when I use power, what I'm referring to is, is things, uh, again, cultural influence, religious, right, the, these sorts of, sorts of things, which for a long time held grand influence in, in our culture. And yet, if you look at what has happened in the wake of those things, meaning... Uh, meaning in the wake of we've made hundreds and hundreds of Christian movies, in the wake of we have, we have our own genre of music named according to what we sing about. It's called Christian contemporary music. We've made it. We've had tours. We've had people sell. We've essentially made our own pseudo subculture to try and influence the other culture. After, after decades and decades and decades of doing that, what we find is that Christianity is not on the incline, but rather on the decline. Right? And we find that, that to be true. Even when Christianity was most at the center of, 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 of the cultural world, meaning when Christianity had, had the most power, even when Christianity has political, uh, political influence, what we discover is that Christianity itself, the amount of people who follow Jesus in a given culture and the actual behavior of those people looking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, being Jesus in the culture, is on, on the decline. And so... Uh, here was what I'd say. I agree with this fully. Let's submit to human authority uh, because the Lord, whether to the emperor or the supreme authority, whoever's in charge, let us certainly submit to him. The problem in Christianity is that we have both wanted to submit to him or usurp him depending on whether we believe that we voted him into power. And if we believed we voted him into power, we wanted to be given power by him. And if we didn't believe that we voted him into power, we wanted to usurp him. And what I would suggest to you is that neither of those are important things to things to do. Ultimately, if you look at what has happened in, in culture, I do not see any culture in, in history where Christianity spread like rapid fire because it was given an appropriate amount of political or cultural power. In fact, we can bear this out. The, the early church spreads like rapid fire. The early church is spreading like crazy. It's growing so fast. We just talked about it with the, the reason it's spreading city to city to city. It's spreading so fast that Christianity becomes a huge influencer within 300 years of, with, of Jesus Christ. It becomes such a huge influence that it's the only thing that sort of unites all the people. It's something that all the people are getting behind. At the same time where it's, it's spreading like wildfire, when Christianity is spreading like wildfire, it's technically illegal. 
It's illegal to follow Jesus, and it's spreading like wildfire. It's, in, it's transforming the culture. People are becoming more and more like Jesus. People are becoming influenced by, by the teachings of Christ. They're becoming more like him. Christianity is growing and spreading like wildfire, right? 300 years. Along comes a guy whose name is Constantine. Constantine comes along, and counter to what any bad author who makes movies might have told you, Right, that would be a Dan Brown reference if you've ever seen Dan Brown in his 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 sort of fiction. He would say, "Well, Constantine made Christianity into what it was because he did this." And so, people like Dan Brown would suggest that that an emperor came along and he codified Christianity, and that made Christianity into what it was, which is exactly opposite of what happened in history. Constantine knows that he needs something to unite his people. He wants his people united because he wants to go conquer other lands, and he's like, "What?" would unite my people and he looks around and he discovers that Christianity is exploding and Christianity is the one thing where where people are starting to agree and become unified and come together so Constantine rather than making Christianity is actually made by Christianity Constantine makes Christianity legal and he gravy trains or follows the influence of Christianity to greater influence for himself so for in the 300 for the first time ever For the first time ever, uh, Christianity becomes a legal state-based religion, right? And so people would go, well, that must have been good. It was spreading like wildfire for the first 300 years. The cities are essentially functionally Christianized. So Christianized that the people not from the cities are called pagan, and and it means what we already described. So it must have been good when Constantine decides to give all of his power to the church, except for that it wasn't. When the church gains the power, Christianity, the spread of Christianity actually slows. In fact, the focus of Christianity actually changes. And the seduction of other things creeps in so that the spread of Christianity falls off. But it's not just Constantine. It happens with Constantine. The spread of Christianity, the the influence of Constantinian state-based religion injected into Christianity actually warps Christianity to the point that Christianity becomes less effective at spreading its good news message because Christianity, which had once been about a group of exiles spreading the good news about Jesus, when they became insiders, they became about protecting their, their power. But it happens every time that Christianity gets sort of mixed up with power. It's not just then. So if you know the story of, um, of Patrick, in, in some churches they call him St. Patrick, right? It's interesting that they call him St. Patrick because they didn't like him. The church that calls him St. Patrick did not like him. But Patrick is a, a member of, of, of a group of, um, uh, of, of monks. And if you've ever read like the book... Uh, how, how the Celts saved the world, uh, about the influence of, of, uh, of the Celtics on, on Western culture. It's huge. But Patrick is this guy that comes along, and he's looking at how the, how the, um, how the, how the monasteries function and how, they, how we're doing, and he decides to switch everything up. And so instead of making, um, <coughs> in, instead of making, uh, making where, the, where the monks lived a place where they, they set themselves apart, and where they avoided culture and became aesthetics, Patrick said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite people in to where we are, and we're going to teach them, and we're going to share Christ with them in, in kind of small groups, and then they can share them in small groups. And, share. and an amazing thing happens. This is in about the year 800 uh, AD. An amazing thing starts to happen. Christianity starts to spread like crazy. It's spreading like crazy. It's spreading like It's spreading like crazy. At the same time, the church, which was over, it sees what's happening, doesn't like it. 
they don't like it, so they try and make it illegal. But when they make it illegal, when they try and wipe it out in, in the church, it spreads even faster, even faster, even faster, even faster, even faster, even faster. To the point where, where now the church comes back in and they say, okay, we like that guy. Let's take his method. And they, they, they fold him back into the church and they, they give power to, to his, his wing. It becomes acceptable. It becomes legal. It comes into the center point of the, of, of the power. You would think then, well, now you can freely do what you wanted to do, it surely it will spread more. Surely Christianity will grow under that sort of freedom. But it didn't. Again, the spread is slowed by its association with power. The more power it gets, the more it gets, more it gets slowed down. In, in China, uh, in China, these, these same things that can be borne out from the apostolic church to the, to the Celtic church to the, to the church in China, this can all be borne out. Each time that the church is in a place where it's on the edge of culture, Christianity spreads. And each time we see a loosening of, 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 of the restrictions on Christianity and a moving of Christianity more towards the center of any culture, the, the Christianity, instead of influencing the center place of culture so that the, the center of culture becomes more like Jesus, Christianity becomes more like the center of culture. The power corrupts it. And that's, that's what this, this center part is saying. Submit to human authority because of the Lord, whether uh, to the emperor or the supreme authority. 100%. We should submit to authorities. But what it doesn't tell us, and what I think we wrongly assume is this, is that it does not tell us that if we can submit to the authorities enough that the authorities will imbue with us power and imbue with us influence, if they would put us in charge, they would make us in charge, if we could just grow that, then Christianity would be more viable and would grow. We don't see that. We don't see it any place in culture. If you study any amazing church planting movement, explosive growth of Christianity, you will not find those starting for, or from or emanating from the center place of any culture. You won't find that emanating from the halls of government. You won't find that emanating from, from, from the, the theater halls. You won't find that emanating from the concert halls of the day. That's not where it emanates from. In fact, Christi the, the reality is power is a seductive thing that sometimes confuses us and sometimes draws us in and sometimes makes us think that that's, that's the answer. So I'll give you a, uh, uh, one example. Is I was in the, when I was in the Philippines a couple years ago, the president of the Philippines lived in Baguio or had grown up in Baguio, but she wasn't going to go back to Baguio, uh, which was her hometown for Christmas, because she was afraid that there would be assassination attempts on her life, which happened regularly and kind of continually. People were always trying to kill her. At the same time, though, she wanted to go back to Baguio because she was working on her campaign and she wanted to campaign there, right? And I said, that's crazy. Here's the thing. I think if someone was trying to kill me, I might just go, I don't need to be president. Let somebody else be president. But her thing was she was continuing to campaign, campaign, campaign. And they were continuing to try and kill her, try and kill her, trying to assassinate, which is common political assassination. So I said to, to my, my friend who is the leader of the churches there, I said, why does she do it? What's the benefit? And he just said, power, power is seductive. And I think that's true. I, and in fact, I know that, that to be true. And knowing that, that power is seductive in that way, consider what happens when Christianity gets mixed with power. By the way, the word Christendom means Christianity plus power. What we have experienced in America over the last, uh, uh, the last decade especially uh, is a very, very, very fast breaking up of Christendom. The, the idea of Christianity and power, we, we, have, we are losing our, our influence. 
And yet, it is in all of us to sort of want and to believe that, that, that if we just had that power, it would be better for us. And it's not, it often comes from a good place. So I'll, I'll tell you that sometimes in, in church planting, I become convinced that there's, there's, a, there's a power way or there's a better way to, to do things. And so sometimes I'll forget and I'll be like, if we could just do that, I bet you the church would just blow up and it would be explosive. And so this is not about power, but it, it'll demonstrate the, the same thing. We have, we have done over, over the years mailings about, about crosswinds. And um, people, other people outside, people in the, in the suburbs at the time when we were planting would send mailings and like hundreds of people would show up. Send a mailing of 60,000, 200 people show up to your church launch. And so we're like, we're going to do that. And we did that and we only got a few people ever. I mean, one who's still with us, so that's awesome. But, but we would spend like, like huge money on a 10,000 person mailing and no one would show up. And I would get convinced in my head though every time I did it, if we do this mailing, this is the one, man. All kinds of people are just gonna show up from the, and I'd get worked up in my head and I'd show up and nobody showed up. But here's the thing about me. I don't seem to learn because occasionally my head will get confused and say, maybe if you just did another mailing, would a mailing work? Would this work? No, it hasn't. In urban communities, it doesn't work. Why? Because mailings are based upon Christendom thinking, the old thinking that there were people out there just going, man, if there were a cool church to go to, I would go to that church. I'd love, and so it's based upon this idea, the mailing is based upon the idea that there is a large group of people out there waiting for us to mail to their house something about how cool our church is. And if only we would mail to their house something about how cool our church is, they would come to that cool church. But the reality is there's not anybody sitting in Godwin Heights this morning waiting for a mailing about a cool church. And in fact, if they are, they've already received that mailing. And in fact, what, what statistics tell us, the likelihood is, is that most people, if they are de-churched, if they've been to church and dropped out the church that they're most familiar with is our style of church or a contemporary church. But occasionally, I'm like, but what if I could tell how really, really cool we are? Like, what if we did, you know, a mailing to everyone in Goblin Heights and we just made clear that we were the really, really cool, and I'm not, I wouldn't do that because I'm, I'm always annoyed by, like, the church that's cooler than the church you grew up in. I think that's rude. So I would not send that mailing, but I'm always like, is there some sort of mailing? Is there something we could send where people would see it and they'd go, oh, that church is so cool. We got... The answer is no. It's, that's, that's Christendom thinking. But as Christendom fell apart in culture, there's not a huge group of people out there waiting, excited for, and looking for a church to going, man, if there was just a cool church. So I'll use the example of that that you expect me to use just briefly. I call this the, 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 uh, the myth of better broccoli, right? And we've talked about this before. You could, you, could, you could call me up and say, Dave, I'd like you to come over for broccoli. And I would say to you, no, thank you, I don't like broccoli. But then you could call me back and go, Dave, Dave, you've got to come for broccoli. It's really good. And I'd go, that's great. I'm not judging, but I just, I don't like broccoli. And then you could call me back and say, but you've got to understand, our broccoli, my broccoli is the best broccoli the best broccoli ever made. My broccoli's so good, you have to taste it. It's, it's full and green or whatever broccoli is supposed to be, right? It's full and it's green and we put cheese on it and bacon. Our broccoli has cheese and bacon. I make the best broccoli in the world and I will still say to you, that is great. I trust that you make the best broccoli in the world, but I don't like broccoli. I don't like broccoli. And frankly, our attempts 
over the last however many years, especially under Christendom, to get people to be a member of the church and invite them to, to Jesus have been based upon better broccoli schemes. We're, we're trying to settle better broccoli to people who simply do not eat broccoli. People like me are going, I don't like broccoli, I don't want broccoli, I don't care what you do with it. It could be the world's best tasting broccoli, but it's going to make it no less broccoli. That's a fact. And so the, our invitation, come to our, it's the coolest. Come to the church, we've got this. We have children's programs and casual dress. So does everybody. We have a cool band and, and preaching. So does everybody. What, what is this? We think that there's this huge group of people out there waiting. If they could just get a piece of mail to tell them about the coolness of our church, that is, that is Constantinian power thinking, and we don't even recognize it because we are assuming a situation where we can say to a person, you need God, and they know which God we're talking about. We're assuming that we can say to a person, you need church, and they're going to agree. But the reality and the fact of the matter is, is we live in a generation that is post Constantinianism, post-Christianity, it is post all of those things, and people are not sitting around waiting for you to give them an invitation to a better church. They don't like church. You might say, well, have they ever really tried church? And I would say, that's what people always say to me about broccoli. I'm not sure. Uh, but here's, here's the reality. What is the answer then if the answer is not expanding our political influence, if the answer is not expanding our cultural influence, if the answer is not expanding our cool factor, then, then what's, what's the answer? And I think it continues to come back to this. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, right? So we're, we're called to live in a culture where we just, we do good and we do right. Where, where we love Jesus and we love others. And people see this happening and that, that becomes, becomes the, the, the apologetic or the evangelistic method of, of the church. See, my messages are most likely to only ever be heard by you guys, right? Like there's not a bunch of people out there Googling right now. Dave Drake messages to listen to. There's guys out there who can preach. I listen to some of them. No one's like Googling me, okay? So they're not, and if the person was Googling me, I'm going to tell you about this, they would be followers of Jesus already looking for a message to listen to. There's not unbelievers out there Googling messages to listen to. There's not, uh, so, so the idea that, that people are going to see our, our stream, that, that could happen. God does what he wants to do. Right, So God can do what he wants to do and people can be reached to that, but it cannot be our main way of reaching people. Uh, we, 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 can do, uh, we can do events and do those sorts of things and we do do some of those, but when we do those, the reason we do them is so that we can connect with people so that we get names. And I don't have a huge expectation after we do an event that people would show up in, in, in church next Sunday because I know how it is. They appreciate what we did for them, but they still, that doesn't mean they want to eat our broccoli, so to speak. So then what's, what's the answer? Well, the answer is the establishment of relationships wherein people can see you, see who you are, see what you do, see how you live. And then, then, as it says here, they will glorify God on the day he visits. Uh, verse 14 says, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. So submit as free people. And what I, what I think the idea here is this, is that you need to commit, consider how am I living my life? What am I doing with my life? What am I doing? Are you living in a neighborly way to the people you work with? 
Are you living in a neighborly way to, to the people that, that, that you go to school with? Are you living in a neighborly way to the people that, that actually live next door to you? Are you living in a neighborly way, way to, to, to the people uh, in your family? Are you doing those sorts of things? Are you living your life amongst non-believers in such a way that, that in, in coming times, because of your good works, they will glorify God? Are you? Because I am convinced... Looking at history and at scripture, the book of Acts is full of it. The term pagan reinforces it. I am convinced of this, that when neighbors will live like, like Christ followers in front of other neighbors, that the goodness of Jesus Christ shines through so strongly that, that people will want to encounter the Jesus that we follow, encounter the Jesus that we love, encounter the Jesus that we walk with. Now, that means that we live in a time where it makes it more difficult. We cannot send out a mailing. We cannot do a giant evangelistic crusade. We cannot do all of those things and expect Godwin Heights, God Freely, or wherever you live to be significantly impacted. It will not and has not worked. It's been borne out. But yet I am I'm confident of this. As Christianity more and more is pushed to the margins of society, the more and more we are marginalized in our society, we will discover on the margins other people who have need, other people who have struggle, other people who have hurt. And as we live out the good news on the margins, not in the center of the power, but on the margins, as we live out the good news as good neighbors to those people, that they will start to encounter, encounter the Jesus that we follow. And when they encounter Jesus, his goodness will draw them to himself. Jesus himself said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men on to me. Jesus desires to be glorified. He desires to be worshipped. He desires to be known. He has chosen, and he has he chosen people for himself to, to be his, 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 own, his own royal priesthood, it says elsewhere in, 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 in 1 Peter. He has done that, and, and knowing that he has, he has done that, he has decided to involve us in it and allow us to be a part of it. But the way in which we do that, especially in the coming days, will be through being neighbors to each person we, 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 we encounter. And I'm defining neighbor here as a person who is, who is relationally involved enough, who, who, is, who is physically involved enough that they can see your behavior, develop a relationship, and see the good that you, you do. It is a high-demand thing that we are called to. And yet this is how Christianity spread all throughout the first century. It blew up. It went from a handful of followers to essentially Christianizing all of the Roman Empire, so much that the, that, 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 the, that the emperor of the Roman Empire had to jump on board with Christianity because it had taken over. How did it do that? Because a neighbor told, Jesus, told his neighbor about Jesus. And when that neighbor heard and saw the message, he deemed that it was good and he wanted that Jesus and he became a part of the fellowship. And then those two neighbors, they went on their way and as they went on their way, as they went about their job, as they talked to the person who lived next door, as they went where they went, they told other people about this Jesus that they knew. And when people were looking at it, they went, well, those people aren't the center of society. They aren't the powerful. They aren't the cool. But they have something about them, this Jesus that they know. He seems to be real. He seems to be transforming. This Jesus seems to be true. Those two people told two other people who encountered Jesus. And when those two people, other two people encountered Jesus, they did the same. And so all of them went again. And those four people told four other neighbors about Jesus. And they lived it in front of them. And those people encountered Jesus. And so then you have... Uh, 
you have a, another doubling and it expands and it expands and then you get into a mathematical thing where there is an explosion of people encountering Jesus. Not through the preaching of, of, of the apostles, though that some did meet him through that. Not through, through, through the gatherings of the assembly, though some did meet him through that. But predominantly, how does the gospel spread in history? It spreads when one neighbor acts like a neighbor and tells another neighbor that Jesus is the reason why. When one neighbor loves another neighbor and tells them that Jesus is the reason why. When one neighbor refuses to give in to the sinfulness and the brokenness of culture, but lives in a way that, that cannot be assailed and cannot be attacked. And when they look at him and go, why? Even amongst this persecution, even amongst this speaking, even amongst all this brokenness, that man has hope. When they encounter that, that neighbor meets Jesus. And when that neighbor tells another neighbor, Christianity starts to spread. And it spreads all over the planet. That is, by the way, the only hope of America coming back to Christ. If you have a passion to see America know Jesus again, I will tell you this, it does not start in the presidential office. I will tell you this, it does not start in the Supreme Court. It does not start in the House of Representatives. It doesn't start in Senate. It also doesn't start in Hollywood. It doesn't start with campaigns. It doesn't start with, with evangelistic uh, tours. If you want to see America a place that worships Jesus again, it starts with you telling your neighbor about the hope that is in you because of Jesus and living it. Crosswinds is based fully on, on this idea. We are convinced that, that that is how Christianity spread historically, and we are convinced that it is the only hope and the only future of Christianity in, in this world. The idea that Christianity is once again going to come back to the center place of political influence in our culture is, is, is far-fetched. And I will, I will point out this. I have not seen in history any demonstration that even if we held the place of highest influence, that more people would truly know our King Jesus what is more likely to happen is more people would become infatuated with the power of our systems. And maybe, maybe true power, maybe true power is knowing Jesus. And what that is, is that then we need to reject the false power of, of cultural coolness, of, of political superiority, of, of, of political office. Maybe we need to reject all of that for the true power of a baby born in Bethlehem, grown into adult, crucified on a, on a cross by, by evil religious influence and evil government influence, put into a grave, resurrected three days later to make for himself a people. And maybe we need to stop seeking all these places of, of power. And, and really, I bring up the large-scale power to, to contrast it with this, but we, we, we seek individual powers even in our neighborhood. We're all always looking for some sort of power. And maybe the answer is this, is that true power was displayed by Jesus at the cross when he gave up his life for us. And maybe true power is expressed in that. And maybe we're called not to seek those other sorts of power, but to seek our power in him. And what that'll look like is you loving your neighbor and tell your neighbor knows Jesus, and then helping your neighbor to love his neighbor till he knows Jesus. And then all of you loving Jesus together in spreading the good news of Jesus neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood. Crosswinds is convinced of this. You can study history. I, 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 if you'd like to look at it, I can, I can show you the books. Rodney Stark has written an amazing book called the Cities of God about the spread of Christianity in, 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 in the first three centuries but I'm convinced of this. Neighbors reach neighbors. It's history. It's how Christianity spread. 
But we live in a time more than any that I've ever experienced, you know, where our current culture is most similar to the first century. Meaning the, the way Christianity is looked at, the way Christianity is respected, the way things are going in our culture. We live in a very post-Christian time. So neighbors reaching neighbors was history, but it's also the future. If you want to see America Christian again, then you will seek your power in the cross and you will love your neighbor with all of your being. That's what's going to transform the world. And that's what's going to transform our country. And that's what's going to cause people to follow and know Jesus. Pray with me.